Welcome to the MLHS Podcast. My name's Ian, as always. I'm here with Anthony Petrielli and our host of our website, the editor of my Leafs report cards, the man who signs my paychecks, Alex Alec Brownscomb. I already mispronounced his name. It's a great start. And that's the last paycheck that's getting signed after that. Yeah, no more report cards. Yeah, didn't even make it through the preseason. I'm Nikita Gusev over here. Like literal months I've been trying to get this guy back on the podcast and you fucked his name up like 40 <laughs> seconds in. So oh, that's a bad start. The scarcity principle seems like it's lost on Anthony. Like my trash takes aren't going to seem so bad because they're not sick of me yet. Yeah, that's fair. They are sick of me, but what I am sick of is twenty two thirty one, and do you know what that is? Is it the year the Mayans predicted the end of the world? That's how much Mitch Marner played in the preseason last night. Oh, this is yeah. I saw that, and I knew you were going to be fired up. Yep. And at, what is going like? Nothing is ever changing. It's just a warm up for uh, twenty six thirty one in the playoffs. I don't want to be that guy that like freaks out on a preseason game. But in what world is are you playing Mitch Marner twenty two and a half minutes in a preseason game where you wrecked them? By the way, it was six two final. That game was really never in doubt, and also it doesn't actually matter at all if the game is in doubt because it's preseason. But thank God that we got a look at Mitch Marner last night because I was actually very curious if he was good at hockey. And I needed that 22 and a half to, to really get an evaluation going on him. I did really like him in the bumper spot. I loved him there, and we can talk more about that later. But Anthony, what number would actually suffice for you? Because he's PP1, he's PK1, and he's line one at five on five. He's going to play a lot of minutes. Are you hoping what? Between 19 and 20 on a typical night? Nylander played 13-15 last oh, night. Boy. Like, if I'm Nylander, I'm just dying of laughter. Just going, okay, it's preseason. I don't care, and I don't want anybody to touch my body. So that's fair. But, like, he played 10 minutes more. You're worried it's a precursor? I mean, it's pretty clearly a priority of the organization's organization. You can see it clearly in the All or Nothing documentary that Mitch Meyer's confidence is something that needs to be um, taken into account, let's say. I don't want to say coddled, but it's just, you know, entering the year, it's probably more about getting him reps on the power play, getting him feeling better, uh, having some success there, getting some touches on there so that he's entering the into the new season with a little bit of a better mindset. But... If you're hoping to see Mitch, Mitch Marner's minutes manage a little bit better, it's not a great harbinger for that. You know, Adam Brooks is legitimately fighting for a spot on the roster. He played under 13 minutes last night. Who do we need to see more? You know, Mike Amadio, who's had a pretty good preseason, I think he can reasonably play in the league in at least a spot duty capacity under 13 minutes last night. I mean, at least Semyonov played almost 20. I know we wanted to go through a bunch of the players, whether it was Gusev, who got cut, Robertson, SDA, guys who got sent down to the AHL, Joshua Hosang, who recently signed a contract. We wanted to go through a lot of the guys in the preseason that we're paying close attention to. But before we got into that, you guys made me watch this documentary, this All for Nothing, or what it's called, All or Nothing. It should have been called. Yeah, because Misery loves company, and we hate ourselves, and we want you to hate yourself, too. I had zero interest so in like, watching watch. this. I, I've been dreading it for months, but I, everyone in the Toronto media landscape is talking about it now, so you guys really wanted me to watch it so we could talk about it on the podcast. 
I get paid to analyze hockey, not documentaries. I, I did not have any fun watching this. What were your guys' takeaways from watching the documentary? Because I have some thoughts, but... As an analyst, though, which you pride yourself on being, like, even as a, a fan who's... Yeah, I understand it. I saw the analogy on MLHS that it's like watching the Titanic and hoping for a different outcome. But it's, you know, it's a, it is a rare window into, you know, the inner workings of how... Keith and Dubas's dynamic works, uh, how the p- dynamic among the players plays out and the relationship between Keith and the players. I think we did get an actual, you know, a reasonable insight into that through watching the show. That's a fair point. I also thought that there was going to be a moment in there that would have you jumping for joy in because you could actually get a peek at one point in one of the scenes at the on the uh, whiteboard what numbers they're actually tracking in game. Um, they had the. Well, no, don't even tell him. Don't even tell him. He didn't want to know. You can oh, rewatch the series. You can find where it is on the board, buddy. Episode, man. But no, you can say it, Alec. You can say, Alec, what this, what they were tracking. I'm surprised you missed it, to be honest. But the they had um, so they were tracking uh, at the top. They had uh, offensive zone possession time. So not uh, of course he's a proxy for it, but actual clock time. Then they also had uh, odd man rushes for and against. They had slot shots for and against with expected goals and brackets. And then at the bottom, I believe they had uh, turnovers for and against. So different things that, you know, can actually sort of point out to players with a, you know, are we getting above the puck well enough, staying above our guy when the puck turns over and giving up odd mans or not? You know, are we getting off the outs, off the perimeter and attacking the net enough? Just things that could be useful sort of between periods to actually, you know, drive home with, with the player group in the dressing room. That's actually one of the clear through lines throughout the series that you know referring back to slot shots and getting off the perimeter Keith did not think that they generated enough of the kind of playoff style ugly offense that they were going to need to uh, to generate and he he definitely was concerned about it early on and all throughout the season yep talking about the lack of rebounds not winning the loose puck battles after the initial shot they were last in the league I think in rebounds when they did that meeting with Muzzin and who else was in the room for that meeting? Uh, Jumbo was there. Morgan Riley, Jason Spezza, I assume. Mitch Marner was also in the room. I, I think. Why is Why is Thornton in that meeting? No, no, the thing the thing that lasted with me and will last with me for like the end of time from that series was that meeting, and there's some legit concern from Keith about how they're looking, and it goes to Joe, and he shrugs, and just says, "Well, we're in first place." Dude, you are 42. You haven't won shit. What are you His talking personality, about? personality, though, he's he's a happy-go-lucky. He's there every day. He shows up to work to try to make everyone feel a bit better. That's not the guy that I want being a vet for for a young team that's underachieved and, like, loses to teams that are less talented to them. Joe's, like, I got no worries, man, quote, that went viral last year. It made yeah. me definitely see in a little bit of a different light, maybe, like... In fairness, I think people would have said that kind of presence was exactly what a young team like the Leafs needed if, you know, that was facing a lot of pressure and had demons that was haunting it from past playoff failures. But, you know, if they just get one bounce late in the series versus Montreal, we all know the razor-thin margins in hockey and the fact that narratives are basically built and destroyed based on, you know, a single bounce of the puck. That's not lost on me. It's just you definitely got the vibe that he was there to sort of keep it light. He wasn't really a guy who was necessarily driving home or advocating for Keith's message and what the coaching staff is trying to get them to do. He was kind of like a 
just a positive vibes only kind of guy, like almost like a like a, like a Peter Gibbons post hypnosis <laughs> from Office Space kind of <laughs> pushes down the cubicle wall and has like the the view of the parking lot. Just slaps a big tread on the desk and just starts fucking cleaning it right there on the desk. I just think it was such a big miss because they could have had Corey Perry, and I think he sort of more embodies what they thought that they were getting from a veteran leadership standpoint, right? Like they show the the blown five one game, and you could you see Dubis and he's perplexed, right? Like, like quite literally, he's sitting there going, "This is why we brought the vets in, like so that this didn't have this kind of stuff didn't happen again." And I think you have a guy. Like Joe, and in fairness, it's a quick edited clip. Maybe he had some hero speech that they didn't show in that exact meeting. I don't know. But you have him, and he he's pretty much his entire career, so I feel fair saying it at this point, is he's been like that guy. Like, it's all good. Like, what are you worried about? And anyone who's ever played any sport knows what playing with that kind of guy is like and the way that that just ripples throughout the team, right? Because then guys go, yeah, damn, he's right. We are in first place. What's the problem? And then, you know. We do have really limited glimpses. Like, yeah. I don't want to make, you know, sweeping judgments about a guy and his leadership style based on 10-second clips. But, you know, and I, I would say that I have heard from, you know, other teammates and coaches of his that he can be really intense and no-nonsense when it comes time to be and knows when to ramp it up. And, you know, I'm sure – you know, Joe's entire vibe would have been a welcome element in the right situation. I just wonder maybe a little bit if it wasn't exactly what was needed within this group with where they're at, or at least I wonder that. And then by contrast, kind of, I don't even think you need to go outside the team to find an example in terms of, you know, Jason Spezza is the exact type of leader the team seems to need in terms of bringing the exact sort of urgency and really just having a real sense for what it's going to take to win and what steps need to be taken and being a real you know, advocate for that, um, for the coaching staff among the player group. Completely agree. And when it comes to Thornton, the things that don't get shown in this documentary are what I find more interesting because obviously the Leafs have final say over what gets shown and what doesn't. If a player has a problem with something, it's not going to get shown. If Dubis, Keith, or Shanahan has a problem with something, it's not going to get shown in this documentary. How many times did they bring up the struggling power play? How many times was Joe Thornton's usage on line one or PP one brought up? None of these concerns were lifted. That would be my other point on Joe. When we sit there and say, like, he's happy-go-lucky and he's chilling and he's having a good time and all that stuff, if you're Joe, you should have taken yourself off the power play. I'll die on that hill. I mean, by the very end of the series, from what I know, he did, but a little too late, in my opinion. It should have happened, like, two and a half weeks before the season ended. For my money, the story of this Leaf season was their struggling power play and how the last 30 games of the year, they were basically break even. And in the playoffs, even though they got one nice goal from Nylander, it was struggling again. It was a big part of the reason they lost. They didn't touch on that at all in the documentary. Why do you think that was? Well, there were probably some things being said behind the scenes that people didn't want to be public. So this is where I get frustrated because I want to analyze this team objectively. I want to be critical. I want to assess what's happening on the ice and why and i don't think that was the point of the documentary at all it just was more or less telling a story it was fun it was interesting but i don't know how much i really took out of it by the end of it i was like a little bit disappointed by just the amount of b-roll and game highlight clips and post-game interviews that were already public and all of which we didn't really have much desire to relive and were already publicly available just spliced up into montages with music on top like there wasn't 
bountiful amount of like mic'd up moments on the bench and on the ice that were memorable. Uh, I assume that's in large part COVID related in terms of not being able to mic up every player, maybe only a player or two plus Keith and, you know, having a skeleton staff in terms of the amount of cameras and camera people you could actually have in there. I mean, I just ripped on the guy, but the the best part of the series was probably the Joe Thornton, Nikolai Ehlers part. Like I died of laughter when he like dove and yelled spear. I mean, I'm laughing just saying it right now. That was so good. The more I watch Nick Foligno, the more I'm really upset he didn't resign with this team because I loved what he provided both off the ice and on it. I'm bummed, man. I I was happy about that acquisition at the time. I wish he, like I I knew that he had a bad back. And, like not when they traded for him, obviously that that it happened while he was here. I mean, you saw the clips; he could barely walk down the hallway. It does make you wonder a little bit, uh, just knowing that that injury did come off of a non-contact situation. He was just kind of stopping up at the front of the net in Montreal in that early May game and yeah. threw his back out. So it does make you wonder if there was something that was lingering there that existed before the trade uh and wasn't caught and maybe should have been yeah that said yeah. like i felt like when he first showed up he was skating very he was skating well and moving just fine around the ice and thought he looked good when he first showed up yeah he had the two weeks he had the two weeks to rest too because of the covid protocols yeah it may too, well right? just so. be you know one freak thing among the many freak things that happened late in that season that led to that you know catastrophic result i i hate to say it too when you're old like you don't want to just stop in the middle of a season like that and then you have to gear up for a playoff race like that's hard that's so hard on the body honestly not even when you're that old if you're you know like late 20s basically once you pass like 24 25 and you start feeling things in life like it's hard to just stop and then get inserted in like that what were your thoughts on Dubis knowingly overpaying for Felino? you could see it on his face that he didn't like the price he was giving up and he still did it you're never gonna like the price though basically but my point is that he just kept putting more chips into the table instead of seeing maybe what some other offers where that to me is where you you get a bit of tunnel vision and player evaluation yeah that's fair i mean i didn't i didn't mind his logic he was sitting there i think they were fairly comfortable giving up a first and they just they had the conversation on it right where they said they have three other firsts on the table and ours is probably going to be the lowest so to me, that I, that's misassessing the board, though. There were other players of value at the deadline that they could have added, and they seemed to really zero in on Felino as the guy. It kind of loops back to what I was saying about the common thread or the clear through line throughout the series in terms of the, the narrative around that Keefe had about the team's offense. What, that kind of speaks to why I think Felino was far and above the other targets and why they're willing to sort of up that ante and not willing to lose him over a fourth round pick uh, just in terms of their concern about whether or not they generated enough of that greasy offense in front of the net and you can see it's not like they've changed their mind about that flaw with the team like you look through all their offseason acquisitions bunting richie even kasha these guys they can get to those areas of the ice um, and generate offense there and score greasier goals so Getting to the inside was a really big point that you heard again and again and again. We're not getting to the inside enough. We're getting beat on the inside. I don't think they've changed their mind on what the issue was. And I don't think they are disappointed necessarily in their process in hindsight so much as, you know, that's kind of a fact of life when you're in a position of renting at the deadline that it's just a risk that comes with the territory. The rental that you cough up good assets for could get hurt. I'm pretty curious just watching the Felino thing and looking back on it. And 
you might remember i think when we first started talking deadline targets it was december early january and i had said my original guy at the time was kyle palmieri who did have a good playoff he didn't look good in the regular season with the islanders but he did have a good playoff and i wonder if that would have been another guy that they would have had quite a bit more interest in he pks he's a goal scorer he probably could have helped their power play and by probably i mean he definitely could have helped their power play I don't know if he could have helped their power play, man. I don't. It seemed like it was beyond solving in the playoffs at that point. You could have had him and Spezza on uh, on the half walls on power play two, and with how bad power play one was looking, they might have actually shown them up, which would have been hilarious and great. And all that to say is Lou went out and got Palmieri early, and generally speaking, Dubas has done his shopping early, right? Like the Muzzin acquisition, the Jack Campbell acquisition, and I, I wonder if he's going to have a... I think he's going to make more of an effort this year. Just a guess. It is kind of sitting there going, I don't want to leave it to the last second again. And it's like the day of, and we're sitting there going, we have to pony up an extra pick. Like, I would be shocked if he didn't make an early trade. One more question I wanted to ask you guys about the All or Nothing series was the Keith Dubas, and player dynamic. I know that's something I've seen a lot of people discussing about how oh, well, players should only be going to the coaches for certain things. They shouldn't be going to their general manager. I know different teams are run different ways. Different organizations have different styles and how they deal with their employees. I'm curious what your opinion was when it came to how Dubas handled certain players, whether it was a Mikheyev, whether it was a Marner situation, uh, Jack Campbell. I'm trying to think who else came to him individually. Jimmy VC. What your thoughts were on how those things were handled behind the scenes? Kyle Dubas is definitely, he definitely came off as every bit of the player's GM that I thought he was. I would say Keith came off as, lack of a better word, a little more emotional maybe or prone to outbursts or just more blunt and direct than maybe I would have assumed he was just based on his comportment and media interviews and so on. But it's clear how simpatico they are and how close they are and how, how much they consult with one another in decision-making processes because there, I was just chuckling to myself thinking about how different it would have been if it was Mike Babcock handling that Matthew situation if he would have bothered to. But the, there's probably zero chance that he consults Dubas on it. There's a decent chance, I think, that Dubas doesn't even know that it happened. You know what was bigger than that one, I thought, though, from a Babcock perspective, at least, if we're going to go on that for a bit, is when uh, Mikheyev went to go talk to Dubas about his ice time because I think Babs would have flipped. Like, why are you having a conversation with him about his ice time and role? If he wants to go talk to somebody, he can talk to me. I'm the coach of this team. And to be honest... I don't think that's the I think that's the right way to do it. I I mean Keith and Dubas seem comfortable with it, so whatever. If that works for them, it works for them. They've been working together for what, eleven years now? Yeah. So I don't think Keith would sit there and say why you're having that conversation with him. He's probably sitting there going, Oh, it's probably good, you have a different voice uh to speak to, blah blah blah. But to me, like the coach should be having that kind of conversation with that guy because he's the one who actually dictates his ice time on a game-by-game basis i already knew this but it's so clear now having just seen a little glimpse into the behind the scenes dynamic that they are absolutely a package deal in terms of you know they're not gonna have a case i don't think where keith would be fired and then dubas would stay on Uh, i think this it's they're making a lot of the decisions together Uh, it's not far off of dubas coaching the team himself in terms of philosophy and even some of the direct decision-making it seemed around like starting goaltenders and talking about ice time with players. And I think it would be extremely weird to reject sort of the Keefe program in that way and it not be a refutation equally so of the Kyle Dubas program. 
Yep, they've been working in tandem, like I said, for the last 10, 11 years, uh, from the Sioux to the AHL, now to the NHL level. Seeing how they operate behind the scenes, whether it's with Brandon Pridham trying to navigate the cap and the taxi squad, certain lineup decisions, the goaltending decision when Keith isn't 100% sure on who's going to go in net, and Dubas says matter-of-factly, of course it's going to be Jack Campbell. What are we talking about here? Why Why is the GM have to anoint the starter? I mean... Maybe that was edited, and maybe there were certain points where Keith said stuff that he didn't want to be public. Again, I don't know what's what was said and what wasn't in terms of what we saw versus what was edited out. Just lastly on Keith there, did you feel like he maybe sort of blew everything he had there with like the Game 6 OT speech in terms of it felt like it was... I know he had to convey extreme urgency in the moment, but it felt like it was like he kind of took that tact of... That wasn't the time to do that. It's now or never. This is what you're remembered by. This is what your legacy is going to be. And this right here in Game 6 OT. I just wonder like what the effect of that is after you've lost the game and you're going into Game 7 and where that the team's mindset is at that point and what he would have followed. I guess we never got the opportunity, but what he would have followed that up with in Game 7, or before Game 7 or in between Game 7 periods, it's just... You know, all you hear about is that, you know, this team's their desire to win is, or at least the messaging from the organization from Shanahan on down is that the team badly, badly wants to win, but they get in their own heads. The critical moments seem to clam up. You know, you just wonder if that's like exactly what they needed to hear in that moment uh, or whether it just added to the crushing feeling that it created versus, and they kind of did play like that in game seven, like the series was already over to me. Maybe I'm just reaching here, but it just, for a team that, you know, it kind of felt like Keith had been like your entire a team that seemed to be buckling under pressure. It kind of felt like it was like your entire season series and legacies on the line here in Game Six OT, and it just and they and they played like that in Game Seven too. But beyond that, I also think he kind of like like cut his nose to spite his face because I I still think like I've I've mentioned this a million times on on here yeah. and I've written about it a few times. The team played like shit Game Six. We all know that, and then he mixed up the lines. And they tied it. Spezza moved up. He broke up the top line. They were having a, a crap game, which he then tells them between o- third period and overtime. To me, like you don't go in there and give a, a big like "this is it, boys" speech at that time. You walk in and you say, "You guys have played like shit. This line, sh- this line shake up work. Like this shaking up the lines worked. I'm gonna roll with these lines now. I don't care. Like I'm trying to win a game. These are the guys that I think are gonna do it." And then, and then you have a decision to make from there, right? Like, like depending on how it goes. Like, if you lose, then you can kind of sit there and regroup. And, and then you give, you know, the speech, I'm going to reunite you guys. I trust you guys, whatever the case is. But I, I think the whole thing was just weird to, like, go in and give a big speech in game six. I know people have, like, taken that to be fired up and say, oh, like, what a sick speech by Keith. Like, what a sick coach. Like, blah, blah, blah. Like, I didn't know he had that in him. Like, I think the timing was poor. I think strategically he was – and you're going to sit there and say, like, well, they did outshoot them a bunch and whatever else. like 13 to 1. 13 to 2. I mean, they outshot them all series. Outchanced them, outpossessed them. Kind of not really the point. Yeah. It, yeah, like it's not the point. And I mean, what's the point of hockey? To outplay the opposition. Yeah, but I, I don't think the point is, is – like you ch- you shake things up and then it works and then you sit there and say I know it just worked but I'm going to put everything back to normal and like reward the play and behavior from tonight 
I think you sit there and you send a bit of a message and you have to use that time that like you have to use those opportunities when you get them to say like you didn't have it tonight and I'm going to go with other guys because then you you show your you show the whole team like I don't give a shit and if you're playing well I'm playing you and I don't care who you are and how much money you make and instead it was I know you guys have played like shit the rest of you guys this worked I'm going to go into the room tell the top line that they were bad Kind of remind me of what the larger problem was with keeping the series, I think, which is when push came to shove, you really only had one thing or one move. And the one time he shook it up, it actually worked. That's what pisses me off the most. Like, you could have just kept doing it. I think he can get so much more out of, like, the bottom, like, eight forwards. And I just don't think he he does anything to, like, cultivate that. I'd like him to play Spezza more, certainly, considering how much he was producing. But honestly... Spezza moved up and scored the first goal in that game. Watching five episodes of this series, the the person I was most impressed with after five episodes of this was Sheldon Keefe. I thought from the very beginning of the season, he saw a lot of problems that were going to rear their ugly heads in the playoffs, and he did everything he could to correct them in practices, in the regular season, even when things were going well. He was saying, look, there are still issues here that we need to fix, and you can say, well, yeah, a lot of coaches would say that it's their job exactly to actually what I'm fix say. it. Yeah, it's exactly what I was going to say, yeah. Ian, and it's like... Babcock identified all of these same issues too. Obviously, Keith. Hopefully, we'll see how it pans out over eighty-two games against you know better teams. But seem to make real inroads defensively. But in terms of actually fixing these same flaws, like it's stuff that Babcock talked about ad nauseum in terms of the team's inability to create the type of offense that's required to score consistently in the playoffs. The issue was that he had he was completely ineffectual in fixing it, and that's ultimately what a coach is judged by. It's not the ability to identify obvious problems that frankly the three of us on this call can identify it's you know are you actually able to implement the changes necessary and get the buy-in necessary to actually fix them the other point i would make about you know all or nothing before we move on is my respect for morgan riley i know there's a lot of uh narratives out there that i found really way off base in terms of you know he wasn't featured because he's gone next year yeah, or it's the contract related thing, or he's not maybe as involved in the leadership group as he would be, as you thought he might've been rather. And I think that's all nonsense. Anyone questioning that at this point hasn't been paying attention for the last few years. To think that Amazon prime thought that through is just the, like the funniest, like galaxy brain. Yeah, like- Riley comes off to me as like the ultimate, no nonsense kind of guy in terms of you know you really saw it when he was asked the media availability at the start of the season about his contract status where he just kind of like firmly put his foot down and said like i'm going to adjust this in this answer and that's it for the rest of the year i think he's just a no nonsense keep it in the room i don't like distractions i want to focus on the task at hand kind of guy i don't think it's anything more than that i just don't think he wanted to participate in it at all i left with having even more respect for mill because i don't know there was that Seen right before Game 7 OT, where sort of, not Game 7 OT, sorry, right before Game 7 third period, where Matthew sort of num- mumbled something about rallying and leaving it all out there. But it was Riley that you could kind of see in his eyes and his body language and his tone of voice that he was all in on trying to turn this around while there's still time on the clock. He wasn't going away quietly. I think Matthews and Marner felt in their heart of hearts that it was over and they played accordingly. I was going to say, the thing is, is they came out that period and that's how they played too. And that's, that's the big thing. Like there were no scoring chances at all. The first 10 minutes of the third period, they didn't come out with like, I I remember just watching going like, what's going on right now? Like, do they know that they're, 
Like, do they know that they're 20 minutes away from the season ending? And so to watch that in the room now and to have a little bit more context to it, I mean, on one hand, yeah, it pisses you off. But then on the other hand, there's just a little bit more context where you're like, yeah, like they they were already wearing it. I think Mo was also just awesome in the series. So I may be ascribing more meaning to this than I should be. But I, I just love that he's a guy who seems to know how to ramp it up and how to turn it on when it's time to turn it on. Like, yes, he's, Ian, he's going to frustrate you on a Thursday night in Florida with his gap or something, but <laughs> everything I've seen from him, this dates all the way back to the Washington series in 2017, is that he knows how to knuckle down and play harder and more committed defense when it's time to and still be dynamic yeah. and affecting the game in a positive way offensively. And he's brilliant offensively, and I don't think I give him enough credit for his brilliance in the offensive zone and how threatening he is. And we talk about trying to get the puck to the middle of the ice. He's one of the few on the Leafs who can, by drawing in defenders from the perimeter, he creates that open space in the middle. He helps guys get open. I actually think they've neutered him a little bit with how, how uh, like, they don't even have him like make decisions anymore on the power play breakout it's like the best asset that he has skating and carrying the puck and they're like be mindless he was and, also and awesome in that series despite the obvious sort of slap in the face that he received in the form of sort of waving in uh rasmus sandin as a rookie to take over the power play from him in the, in the most critical time of year yeah take him off the power play for sandin this guy who played like that's five games. one year after handing the reins over to that tire fire tyson berry over him too in the columbus series yeah he had to do something, man. That power play was awful for was, two was months. Was that the problem? Was Morgan Riley really the problem with the power play? No. No. And that and that's where it's just the the people and management and the ego management and all those things. And I mean, it's crazy. We've talked about this a number of times. I mean, and this is a good segue into the preseason. Like Nick Robertson got sent down. The fact that they walked this guy into playoff games is insane. Like that's what shit teams do. He didn't even make the final games of preseason this year. I don't know. There, there are rookies who play their first games in playoff series and make an impact. I know, but I'm saying they they shouldn't have done it. Like they like they should have just went with like actual like NHLers. Hindsight's twenty twenty. I think they needed an offensive boost in the bottom six. No, I thought it was insane. You've at got the to time. have an interesting comment on that note recently, where you said that Robertson's not on the team this year because the depth is so greatly improved. And that's kind of an interesting comment. Like they definitely in that Columbus series they had. No, McKayev was back and healthy at that time. Johnson came back later in the series healthy. But they had they had Kapanen on the team still, which allowed them to shift a Nylander to the left. Uh, Engvall was sitting there scratched a lot of the time in, in order to play Robertson. So I, I don't know. I think that's a little bit of the revision of the history. I hope he's right in terms of how much better the depth shapes up this year. But I guess that remains to be seen. Their depth was fine that year. What, was that last year? They didn't score in the bottom six. No, the oh. year before with Kasperi Ka- when Kasperi Captain was on the team and they traded for Kyle Clifford, Jason Spezza was there. Engvall was there, who he hates. I just also can, I just, I died of laughter when Engvall scored in the preseason. I think that was his first preseason game. At what point is he just going to admit that Engvall is one of their 12 best forwards? And like, just like, like, stop this. Like, just stop it. He is. On most teams in the league. I think he's a good player. I, he frustrates me to no end, but I think he's an effective hockey player. Tell Sheldon. I mean, the frustration is obvious in terms of he can spend shifts entire games with his head totally in the clouds. 
where he'll on a forecheck he'll skate behind the net away from the puck. So does William Nylander. The difference is that he's William Nylander and that Pierre Engvall doesn't exactly have that talent. Yeah, no, I get that the difference. I'm not going to say to healthy scratch William Nylander. My point is he's very brave, as I've said a million times, with the depth guys. Like, you want to make actual change? Like, you have to get on the top guys when they screw off. Like, but, like, just sitting Engvall, making him wait the preseason, like, it's a joke. It was a joke watching that game. Like, he's clearly, a like, a legit NHL player. He's fast. He can shoot. Hilariously 6'5 every shift. He can play center if you need him to. He can go up and down the wing. He's not an embarrassment in his own zone. In his own zone. I think the real question is, how do you... How do you get him to be the best version of himself, though? Because Keith wants him to win battles on the inside. Keith wants him to put his body on guys in the defensive zone. He wants him to be a guy who actually finishes his checks, and he doesn't. So how, how do you get that out of him? Because he's always going to be fast. He's always going to have a heavy shot. He's always going to get a two-on-one out of nowhere by just skating fast. But how do you turn him into that player who, as you guys have brought up, in a playoff series when goals on the inside are tough to come by? To me, his baseline is still high enough that he should be in the lineup every night. It's just... I, I, but I get it. Like, nothing drives coaches crazier than a big guy who can skate like that, who has the physical tools that he has, who waver in terms of their engagement and their uh, physical intensity. I think, you know, he is 25 now, and you hope that the repeated messaging and so on and so forth eventually starts to click for him. But I think another element of it is actually just building a line around him that, you know, like a, an actual checking line with some sort of identity to it. You know, be it with Mikheyev or Camp, versus just being, you know, roster or lineup floatsome that just kind of plugs into a array of lines that never really form a, a real identity that would bring that out of him consistently. I like that idea because those guys, Camp and Mikheyev, are dogs in puck battles. So if, if Engvall sees that, by osmosis, does he start doing it? Such a different team now. This used to be a team with four lines of very good offensive players. And now they're a team with two very good defense pairs. TJ Brody, that addition, I think, really changed the the entire landscape of this team because they used to have a Kasperi Kapanen on a line three that gave you some offense. Now they have two good D pairs, but the third line kind of sucks. So I think that changes things. The third line doesn't have to suck, though. And to me, though, the thing is, and these are the things that kind of add up throughout a season, if you want to actually kind of change... I don't want to say change the culture because I think that's a little bit too heavy, but change some of the attitudes on the team is when you go back to the, the 3-1 Oilers lost there, that was profiled with we played it safe, you know, and then Keefe's all pissed off because he's like, we didn't get on the inside. To me, that's when you have an identity line and instead of just whining about it after to your general manager and then pulling over your best player who clearly was disinterested, in the whole conversation and practice and then addressing it with the team that maybe it was a short edited clip and somebody did say something after, but the way that camera panned didn't look like anybody had anything to say about it. So instead of just sitting there that game and saying, I'm sure if I pulled up the ice time, it'd be like Matthews 22, Marner 22, whatever. You just say, screw it. The top guys aren't committed to like getting into the dirty areas. I'm going to ride this, like this grind line. I'm going to ride this identity line today. If anything, just to prove a point, like I'll take a loss. At least these guys will go to the right spots on the ice and try to get inside our opponents. You guys want to play on the perimeter today and screw off. I'm just going to ride with other guys, but they never do that. You you actually do need to build a line that you can turn to in those situations. And 
I think this year, at least on paper, based on the versatility of the pieces he's, they've added in the camp and Kasha and Bunting and Richie, that he doesn't have as many excuses, I don't think, um, not to build a line along those lines, right? So last year it was kind of like you felt like you, you, he, had, he had to move Hyman down there to really make the third line go and to give him that identity third line. But, you know, you were kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul, he felt like, because he needed Hyman up top so badly too. Imagine if they had a bunting or if they had a depth piece that actually could play with Matthews Marner that allowed you to have Hyman on that third line. But my thing is, are these guys even going to play anyways, which brings me back to the very first thing I said on this podcast, which is 22-31. You have a meaningless preseason game where you're wrecking this like shitty team and uh, you have Mitch playing 22 and a half. Minutes talk. I know Myrtle taught me this a while back. Minutes talk. Coaches can say whatever they want about a player in the media, but at the end of the day, minutes talk. But we could say on this, but on that same token, like we could say whatever we want about like actually building three plus lines and like using the tools at your disposal more effectively and like creating this depth and creating this like identity line or whatever you want to call it and like yada yada yada. It does not matter if they're playing like 11 minutes a night because basically you're just gonna have those conversations like we saw with Mikhaev where he's coming in. And really, what Mikhaev is saying there is it doesn't matter what I do. I'm playing like 12 minutes a night. Like that was pretty much the crux of what he was getting at because he was kind of confused. It was kind of like, I thought I was playing well, but I only played like 11 minutes. It is a little bit disappointing for me too from the player standpoint there though because I still like his game a lot, but I just wish he was embracing the existing role a little bit more with open arms. Like I think he has plenty of room to score more even while playing in the role he played last season. He had tons of opportunities that he squandered. It's just disappointing to me that he's on a team that, has the pieces to win a cup and he does fill an important role for them as Dupas tried to emphasize in their talk together and he doesn't seem happy in that role because he's good at it and but I think that's the ice time talks so though I think he's saying this isn't I mean, important isn't any competitive pro athlete always going to want more ice time more puck touches it is really important though that on winning teams you have good role players fully committed to their roles yes like I think about that Ken Danico story with Lou Lamorello where they almost got into a fist fight. Yeah, the orchestra, like you like blow the tuba. Uh, violinists and drummers. And, you know, he was like, it was hard to hear, but, you know, I ended up having 15 years in the league because I embraced you know, what I was in the NHL and what my role was. And they ended up fucking winning together. So, like, I don't know. I just kind of wish there was sometimes yeah. I wonder about why there isn't just a little bit more buy in across the board. Like, I don't want to obviously drudge up the. RFA contracts to star players, but I think you know where I'm going with it. But you have to, you have to give a dog a bone, though. Like I know what you're saying, and you're right. But like, in order to actually build that, you have to give a dog a bone once in a while, which is to say, like you have to give a little bit of a reward here and there. And I think the frustration is these guys don't get rewarded. I also get that it's a different dynamic when you've come over from a place where you were paying, getting paid good money to be a scorer, and that's your expectation and you're in a contract year this year like I get all that he also came over and was instantly well not instantly but pretty quickly earned his way up to playing with Tavares opposite Hyman so I get all that it's not the exact situation of a Ken Danico but I just think there's always gonna be players that probably have a better case to be in among the top six and unless he starts bearing on all the opportunities that you know Nylander and Tavares are gonna create if, so it drives us nuts about Spezza, right? Because Spezza can, like Spezza had the hat trick. I think he played eight minutes that night against Vancouver. Like it, it very clearly does not matter how well Spezza plays that night. Like he's just not getting ice time. 
And he led the team in points per 60. I'll say it for the hundredth time. What does this guy need to do to get more than nine minutes a night? The nice thing about Spezza is he's a vet. He's made his money. He doesn't care. Mikheyev is, is not a vet. My, all my point is on Spezza, it's easy to get a vet to buy into that role, and you can see how effective it is. But a guy like Mikheyev is sitting there going, I haven't made my money. I haven't like made my all-star games or anything. But you're telling me if I play well, I'm going to play pretty much the same amount of ice time as if I don't? Like what? You know, I, I'm sure everyone here has been in a job before where it's like, doesn't matter what I do, I'm not getting a raise. That doesn't improve morale. And I think that's what he's feeling. And I, so <laughs> I've been kind of laughing at the, like the, the lines where it looks like they're going to give Mikheyev a look in the top six, because I really think that the, I don't want to say it's malicious, but I, I know what it is. I, I, it's, it's the coach going like, you whined about this. Like, like, I'll give you a few looks here. And if you don't do shit, like you're going to go right back down. And if you say anything to me, like, I'm going to get this out of the way with right now to start the season. And if you come talk to me at like game 50, I'm just going to look at you and be like, I started you there and you didn't do anything. And then when he fans on his next three chances that Neilander gives him and the, the star players are looking at him. What did Jimmy Vesey have to say to get that to start the season? That's what I want to know. That was weird in general how much emphasis there was in that show about players that just aren't even on the team anymore. It was the Nick Felino and Jimmy Vesey show. Maybe the Leafs thought that Jimmy Vesey was a big deal and like he was like a circled name where they handed to him. They're like, you want to profile this guy? And then they did. And then Amazon Prime like watched a series play on there. Like, what the hell are these guys talking about? This guy sucks. Like, That's kind of the typifies the Jimmy VC story, though, right? The much ado about nothing, dating back to the sweepstakes coming out of college. Who do you guys want to see in that on that Tavares Nylander line? Because I'll make my case for a case for Kasha. I think you should slide Nylander over to left wing, go Nylander, Tavares, Kasha, because I think Kasha has been their best player in the preseason. I love his passing ability. I love, like you said, Anthony, his ability to get to the middle of the ice drop the shoulder, and win battles to the inside of the ice. It's why they acquired Foligno. It's why they acquired Richie and Bunting, guys who are going to be able to win those battles. Kasha can do that and give you zone entries and give you zone exits with passes. He, he does a lot. I don't love him on the PK, but I want to find a way to get Kasha more minutes because I think he's awesome. I wouldn't. I just wouldn't have... Like, he's not going to do it, so I'm just talking to a wall. I just simply wouldn't have Nylander and Tavares together. One, I largely don't think that Tavares and Nylander are good together, to be honest with you. Very rarely have I watched. Like, I like they did not look good together for the first half of the season. And then the second half of the season, they were producing. But I don't think it was because, like, they had some sort of sick chemistry or anything. I just think they're both sick players, and eventually they were going to eat. But, like, I very rarely watch those two guys and say, like, wow, like, these guys are really clicking. I watch Nylander fly around, and I go, I don't really think Tavares can keep up with him off the rush. Can he keep up with Marner? No, but I think he can keep up with Matthews. I no, oh, Tavares can keep up with Marner for sure. I don't think Marner's that, that was fast either. Yeah, sorry. I thought you meant can can Matthews keep up with Nylander, which is an obvious yes. So you're saying Nylander's significantly faster than Marner. I, yes. I guess I can see yeah. what you're saying there. I, significantly. I, I like the idea of Marner with Richie. I really like that. I like the idea that Richie, 230 pounds, no cross-checking anymore is allowed. He's going to be in front of the net. What I told you last week, like go he's kind of lazy. He just, but he'll just stand to go to the net. Like he knows his role. What's Marner done his entire NHL career? He's hit guys in that spot with backdoor passes. To, to Anthony's point, uh, I actually think, and I, more than anything, you just want to see experimentation because there's so many options available now. 
But I certainly would like to see Nylander with Matthews and Richie potentially as well, because I think what they are losing in Hyman is obviously a premium forechecker, somebody like an elite go-get-the-puck guy, much better skater than Richie, much more of a dog on the bone in terms of his work ethic. He is lazy. Game after game. Um, Richie might actually have better hands and tight, but and maybe a better shot, but they're going to miss that element, obviously. And I think a guy yeah. like Nylander is a better forechecker than Marner in terms of going into stripping pucks and um, using the leverage of his size and strength to actually win puck battles down low and turn it into instant offense. I, which is funny because I know Hyman's basically played out to like a 30-goal pace the last two seasons. But, you know, if, if you were going to say pick a tight corner and shoot the puck, I would take Nick Ritchie 10 out of 10 times to shoot that puck over Zach Hyman. So, yep, that's his skill set. He, he Puck's on his stick, puck's off his stick, and it's a, it's a good shot. Yeah, But he can't do much else. He can't carry the puck. He can't skate fast up the ice. He can't make plays off the rush. Yeah, and all all to say is like I know it's like it just I think that they could be really good. I think they have the pieces to be really good. I think it's basically going to be more of the same, which is what frustrates me. It frustrates me seeing that ice time the way that it was last night. And again, preseason game caveat, all that crap. But the fact that that actually happened in a preseason game to me is beyond belief. I think we're basically into the the Babcock vortex of stubbornness at this point where it doesn't even seem to be a conversation that it's just like Nylander with Tavares, Marner and Matthews. I think that's an insane way to just run your four best players where you basically just decide in preseason that this is who's paired with who and let's call it a day and rotate the pieces. Like how is, how are you not rotating them amongst each other? That's insane. Can I go into my bag of tricks here and pull out a crazy idea? Nylander, Matthews, Marner. Why not? Sure, whatever. Like, it could be anything, but... No, but, but I'm serious. If up. you're going to top load the minutes, let's get Nylander some more minutes. Sure. And it's and it's funny, too, because we sit there, and I'm going to die of laughter when this happens, is it looks like, you know, Keith was talking about giving Nylander a look on the PK. That's not what I'm going to laugh out at, by the way. Although I don't think that PK is his best strong suit there. I don't think he plans on blocking any big-time slap shots from the point. Yeah, so whatever. That's that's a later in the season kind of thing, but whatever. If they want to try it in, in October, go nuts. Uh, and then he's going to play power play one and then presumably a little bit more ice time. So all that to say is I'm going to laugh when he's playing like 18, 19 a night uh, and then think back to Keefe last year in the playoffs being like, oh, like we got Nylander out of that like 16-minute time zone that like we think is optimal for him basically. Which Paul is Maurice like, does the same thing with Nick yeah. Ehlers. It drives me insane. Yeah. To, to be clear, like I think... I also think that Richie, Marner, and Matthews could also work. I think that Tavares, Nylander, and Richie could potentially be a fit. I think you could push Nylander left and yeah. go Kasha with Tavares and Nylander. And obviously, you can try bunting out in those roles as a sort of a Hyman light if you wanted on the Matthews line or Tavares's wing. I think there's a lot of options and versatility there. Yeah. I like the the mix of what they've added over last season, but. I think more than anything, you're just looking for Keefe not to fall into sort of rigid patterns. Like you, like I said, you have a good amount of versatility and options available to you. They are elite centers. Yeah, Matthews and Marner are. It's proven to be an elite combo. Like one of the best yeah. in hockey, and it's a well that you can go to at any time. That's just the don't thing. do it to the exclusion of other possibilities that could be very worthwhile and trying out, and might come in very handy in the playoffs when the 
say those two go cold or you know a key injury strikes and you have nothing to fall back on right and i'm going to be saying this all season especially when trade deadline comes up and we're trying to figure out who the leafs are going to target they need a third line because you brought up the idea of mikhaev camp and engvall being a third line i like the idea of it is that a championship caliber third line because i don't think it's not no i think i i think it would i think it would be like you would have to do it the way that st louis won the cup where their top six plays a little bit more uh, plays a little bit more and then your third and fourth lines basically balance right because that third line had like bozak and robert thomas like they were a scoring line and you could probably do that with spezza and like maybe a bunting type kind of thing and then you have that you might need cash on that third line for the offense because mikhaev's not going to score yeah. camp definitely isn't going to score engvall may or may not score yeah. I mean, you could do it with Nylander and Kerfoot, but again, like those... I don't want Nylander on the third line. He's going to play 12 minutes a night instead of 16. That's, no, that's... he won't. No, no, because you, you, you still... That's the thing. Like, it, it's crazy that they don't get moved around uh, like chess pieces. Like, it almost feels like we can't break up Matthews and Marner because if we do, they're going to, like, forget how to play together and, like, make things happen. Like, you can, as Alex said, like, you can go back to that well, like, literally any time. You can put them together for the final 10 minutes of a game. And they'll be fine. Like, how funny was... I know Alec will remember this for sure. How funny was it in the last season when Tavares was in a slump and the Leafs were wrecking some crap Canadian team like they all are, and they put Marner and Tavares back together for the final, like, 10 minutes of the game, and JT, like, instantly scored off of a Marner pass. And it was just like, this is a joke, man. Like, how... like. Like, how don't you have these guys together at some point? Just Every TV like, timeout, you're going to start the first shift right after that. We're going to power line to end the period. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, just do it. Like, just play them together. Like, you can just move things around. Like, you can play Nylander on the quote-unquote third line, but you could just look at Willie and say, I'm going to move you up to, like, close periods. I'm going to, like, stay a little bit longer on the power play. Like, you can make up that ice time. Like, it's not that hard. Yeah, like like you can totally, you can totally put him there and make him whole at the same time. But like that's some of the stuff where you talk about like buy in and roll. Like you just like you have him buy into that. Like I need you to carry this line. Like you're sick, and like I'm gonna make sure you like you eat at the same time. Like he's gonna say no. We're approaching an hour now, so before we get out of here, I want to hear your guys. Um players who have impressed you the most along the periphery of the roster guys who are fighting for those 12 forward spots and the nikita gusev role the, the yeah, guy who's gusev impressed stinks. <laughs> yeah gusev's definitely the bottom of that list i think he's just to- would have been totally redundant on this team they don't need to i don't think complement the existing group with a like a wannabe top six scoring winger who has nice hands and vision and can maybe contribute on a power play in the right situation but can't defend isn't a great skater it's no physical intensity to his game whatsoever. It's literally like the opposite of what they've been looking for in terms of complementary skill sets to what they already have in their forward mix. He looked like me in a beer league game, just no intention of going into the corner to grab a puck. Yeah, yeah, I saw him play in person, and he just didn't even look like he was in shape. Like, I don't really know what he thought he was going to accomplish here. I'm, t- I'm telling you guys, man, the Leafs must have comped his flight. They must have put him in a nice hotel or something because he looked like he wanted to be in Russia, like just he looked great nothing. on the power like, play when he was on the power play he looked no, like nobody Gusev cares when he was at five on five so did sda uh-uh. if you have a pair of SDA if you have a pair of hands last couple games at five on five if you have a pair of hands and you play power play in preseason you're gonna look good 
and then everyone inevitably craps themselves on it. It's, it's same thing I told you last week. You can only look at five on five, the re- and PK. And honestly, that's the way to evaluate forwards. Five on five is what I care about the most. Yep. Hosang looked like he was a motivated guy. Uh, I think they're doing exactly the right thing and making him consistently dominate for a while yeah. in the AHL, which, you know, for the record, he hasn't ever done. Um, sort of continue to cement the structure pieces they want him to understand, incorporate them into his game, have him. And also go play with Robertson. Like go, you two go tear it up together on a line. Like that's good. Sort of. Hopefully cooking along nicely and confident and in the hopper in case or when, uh, I guess I should say when, Kasha gets hurt. Uh, I just think there's no sense in starting him with very limited five-on-five minutes and limited power play time down the lineup. He's barely played in the league. Uh, He'll lose touch with his game so quickly, I think, and just sort of be rudderless and... A guy like that needs to be left to prove he can dummy the AHL, come up with like loads of confidence when an injury strikes in the top six or something. He also has to prove he's like committed through the grind of a season. Like when he gets asked to do things he doesn't want to do, gets challenged by the coach. Like it's it's easy to look good in a few weeks in camp. Get into the puck battles, back check, yeah. Yeah, and be fired up like first game of preseason, first game with fans in like a year and a half. Like yeah, you if like I said, if you didn't have if you weren't fired up at that point, I mean you're in the wrong sport. Like give your pulse a check. Like that you know there's no point here. So. You're right. And the funny, as a quick aside, that Steve Simmons tweet today caught my eye about... Why are you watching Steve Simmons tweets? Well, (laughs) he said that... So Galchenyuk signed with Arizona, and he said it was for less money than what the Leafs offered him. And I just... I don't know what Galchenyuk was thinking. Like, he had a good thing going. He clearly had not... um, like legitimized himself to a point where he was going to have like a bidding war or anything like what a tool and and they and, like him they like him on that second line next to Tavares Nylander are you going to get a better opportunity in Arizona you probably not you come back for a million dollars or whatever it is let's say let's say let's say it was even the 750 that Arizona offered you play for a playoff team you have chances to play on the power play you have chances to play in the top six with elite centermen you have all of the benefits of the Toronto exposure and all the crap that we know that goes on with that. Like, just what an absolute... So respect to Dubas, because I don't know exactly what happened in negotiation, but basically I would have said, like, we'd like to have you back on this, like, sweetheart deal, and, and you get, like, a full year to prove yourself. And if Galchenyuk went, like, I'm going to test the market, I'd have been like, all right, see you later. Remember when Cody Franson tested the market? It kind of reminded me of that, where you just you bet on yourself and you were wrong and you have to eat it and sign for Arizona. He was out of the league. The Leafs, I'm not going to say they fixed him or anything, but they gave him a real shot when nobody else was. The Leafs rebuilt Alex Galchenyuk. It just nuts, like insane. All right, uh, my fa- my favorite player... My favorite player of the preseason so far has been Kirill Semyonov, if I'm pronouncing that right. I, I didn't like really him. know who he was. I didn't. I, I didn't come into camp expecting to know who he was, and then immediately. You liked him more than Bunting. Okay, Bunting's pretty sick. But my point is, he <laughs> blew past my expectations. Is, is what I was referring to. Bunting, I expected to be on the I, NHL roster. I, I think Semyonov has a chance to be the four C. Mm, it's possible, and the fact that that's even a possibility speaks to how well he's played because. I didn't even know who he was, and then after the first or second preseason game, I'm just circling his name all the time. I'm making notes going, that's a quick one-touch pass and transition to create a three-on-two. 
He read the game so fast there. Defensively, he's in the right spots. He's a skilled player. On the PK, I trust him. He's versatile. You can play him on the third line. You're thinking center, wing. He got about a well, half they have point had him per at game. Center. Yeah, yeah. Okay. He, he scored at a half point per game in the KHL over the last couple of years. I want to see him on the Marlies. I'm, I'm very curious to see some of these guys on this Marlies team because you have Semyonov going down there, Hosang going down there, SDA and Nick Robertson. There are some intriguing forwards on the Leafs that are going to be on the Marlies this year. I'm excited. I'm not sure what the word is on it, but I highly doubt he came over here to spend extended periods making $80,000 in the AHL. So there had to be no. some indication yeah. he's going to get no. some sort of look in the regular season. So early calls that I feel good about so far, but you know I'm aware it's preseason, so I'm not going to go nuts on anything. The obvious one is he made much better bets this offseason on depth guys like no jimmy vc travis boyd shit like bunting looks legit i like richie i think he kind of fits in as like i don't know if he's massively gonna move the needle but he's not gonna hinder it or be embarrassing you know and then he'll add like a few moments of uh whatever if he takes a run at a few guys i'm not gonna be upset uh david camp is a useful piece so eat shit ian i'm gonna remind you about that literally Uh, all year uh, i uh, i'm happy about that we'll see when he, when he scored two goals 60 games into the year, we'll, we'll talk more. I don't care. Win face-offs, PK, be good defensively. I'm fine with that. 1.5, sign me up all day. Um, I still have no clue why Alex Kerfoot's on this team. Amen I will probably say that. such 82. Like, just just watching him, and again, it's preseason, it's vets. I'm not going to take it seriously, but you just you kind of sit there and just go, even if you're just building the lines in your head, you sit there and go like, where the hell am I If he's not guy? playing second line left wing, I don't see how you get any value out of him. If you are gun ho on camp being your three C, which they seem to be. I wonder if we see something kind of like what we were talking about earlier. And we talked about before Anthony with the St. Louis blues during their cup run, where they at least have two bottom six lines that are more or less equal in minutes. Yeah. And it fluctuates depending on the matchup. Can be any given night. The checking line plays more and, uh, he spotted in for defensive zone faceoffs and tough assignments, sort of alleviate a bit yeah. of that burden on Tavares and Matthews. And then, you know, you also have a scoring bottom six line that's really sheltered that maybe is comprised of, you know, Alex Kerfoot and Jason Spezza, and maybe it's a bunting on the other side. And that's what pisses me off about the expansion draft because I know you're going to sit there and talk about McCann. I know that's going to come up at some point throughout the season. Hey, has anyone watched him in Seattle? How's he yeah. doing? Just curious. Yeah. Just really wondering how Jared it's McCann looks so far. It's so whatever. He's not playing one C in Toronto. Yeah, so... Yeah, he's not going to be quarterbacking the half wall of PP1 in Toronto. That's fair. Yeah. But all that aside, and I said this leading up to the expansion draft like a million times over, Seattle, for all intents and purposes, was set to pick Alex Kerfoot. And the Leafs should have just viewed that as a gift. Like, that was $3.5 million in cap space that would have been opened up, right? And Also, you could have traded him. He had value. Teams saw him in the first round and thought he was good. All NHL GMs that you polled thought he was good. <laughs> you literally get value just opening up three and a half mil and using it elsewhere. Instead, it's like now we're, like, squinting and, like, awkwardly trying to figure out where this guy fits. And there's a real chance that he starts, like, centering Jason Spezza on the de facto fourth line. I think he's going to be my Cody CC this year. My, why are you on this team guy? I just don't get it. And well, I don't know if he can take that mantle from Wayne Simmons, who very similarly, it's like you gave this guy two years and a no trade clause, which was and the other thing. he's not one of your 12 best forwards. I harped on a lot this offseason. He's not. He's arguably not one of your top 14 yes. forwards. And again, I love Wayne, and I could see them playing him game one. 
and him taking like one of the greasiest runs at somebody of all time in front of the home crowd. And I'll love it. Like, I'm not going to sit here and say I'm not going to enjoy it. I will be fired up. Like, he runs somebody over and skates by their bench yapping. I am going to love it just as much as everybody else watching it. Zero questions asked. But guys, he does not look like he can skate. Maybe it's way too hopeful and optimistic of a charitable of an explanation. But you'd like to think that, you know, part of the deal was sort of you're not going to be an every night guy. We'll give you, you know, an extra year of security with a no move so you're not feeling like you're in a precarious spot here in terms of where your future lies but you know it's not as an everyday guy here anymore who are they competing with for a second year like wayne like wayne called up kyle and was like yeah i got a few two-year offers on the table like are you gonna match it i did love simmons in the clips the little clips we heard of him in the all or nothing series though. oh dude everyone loves wayne simmons no one dislikes wayne simmons the human being he's incredible like he's a straight up killer when the games get intense and I get why they really want that element still around the team. It just can't be yeah, every night. I get it. But it do- does it matter as much from a guy who's playing six minutes a night and is a re- below replacement level player? Not for two years and not for more than veteran minimum. And like, whatever, you can say it's a couple hundred grand, but on principle alone, I'd be like vet minimum one year. Thank you for making Same my point on the David Camp contract, Anthony. I really appreciate that. You did a good job. No, I'm fine. I think, but I think that money's worth it. If you're good on the PK and you're six center defensively, and you can and play you can against trusted, top competition, yeah. help open up ice for other people. I, I think he's worth saying. more than that. If he, like, like honestly, like you hated Manny Malhotra back on, like the the money puck Vancouver Canucks. Like, come on, there's no chance you did. Well, I mean, he was oh, used gosh. in a very specialized role. Yeah, you don't think they're gonna do that with camp? That's why I don't get the cat the playing cachet there. I'm just like you're you're wasting this guy. They were okay. We, we'll we'll touch on this more next week. But they've been line mates their whole I lives. Don't care. Dating back to like I when they were care. kids what in the Republic. Well, I, I'm. I think that's like, a yeah. That's probably they, why because yeah, the same team. everybody. It's just we're not trying to win. We're it's just about friendships. We just want to make sure everybody has a good time. We're all they have telekinetic powers. They know exactly where they are. I will light the campfire <laughs> for them. We can all hold hands and sing around it. I don't give a shit about these friendships. I don't give a shit who wants to play with who. It's what's best for the team. I'm sure Kasha loves it when he threads a saucer pass onto David Camp's stick and he whiffs on it. I'm sure he's going to love like, it. Oh, it's fr- like Toronto Maple Leafs, baby. Ready to get hurt yet again. Blue and white disease. One more year. One more year. All right. This was the MLHS podcast with Alec Brownsco, Anthony Petrielli, and Ian Tullock. Thanks for joining us this week, Alec. It's about time uh, you got yourself back. Yeah, see you guys next year. <laughs> Everyone is looking at me. Time is running and we're down by three. Look inside yourself, what do you see? The pain is in your mind, no, nothing stops me. Everyone is looking at me. I'm just running and we're down by three. Look inside yourself, I know what I see. Do you have the guts to? Do-